Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the story of Rome's richest man who died humiliated in the desert after going in search of military glory, the 1926 census and the plans to have it digitised, and what life was like for ordinary people in Ireland between 1921 and 1923. We'd love you to email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, or indeed if you have any suggestions for future shows. Last week we explored the life and death of Lord Castlereagh, the controversial politician and statesman, and we explored his legacy and his reputation in Ireland and Britain. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the story of Crassus, the world's first tycoon. Crassus was a modern man in an ancient world, a pioneer disruptor of finance and politics, and the richest man of the last years of the Roman Republic. And his story poses both immediate and lasting questions about the intertwining of money, ambition and power. And it's been told brilliantly in a new book, Crassus, the First Tycoon. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Peter Stothart. And Peter, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Great to be here. So tell us about Crassus and maybe start with uh, what happened to his father, because that seems to have had a, a huge influence in shaping his life. Yeah, his father was a, a moderate, wealthy politician who was squeezed, as so many moderates are, at times of revolution between uh, one side and the other. So he was trying to sort of play both sides, both the haves and the have-nots, who are always sort of fighting in, in, in Rome in that uh, early period. Uh, and he tried to be sensible and to be uh, reasonable and to work a bit of a thing between between the two sides. And I think like a lot of people who uh, try that, he ended up with his head on a spike. And uh, the last thing that Crassus saw of his father before he went into exile was his uh, his father's head on the spike, pretty much in the in the place on the roster in the forum where he'd made a lot of his big speeches. So uh, I suspect that was a pretty lasting uh, uh, memory for Marcus Crassus. So how did Crassus then go from being, as you say, having to go into exile to suddenly being the richest person in Rome? Because it's, a, it's an extraordinary story of how he was able to, to turn different things to his advantage and, 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 and pretty much use his ambition to, to drive himself forward. Yeah, well, he wanted different things. That's why he's a sort of modern man in, in, a, in an ancient world. Uh, he's great rival. Um, at the time of this revolution, was was Pompey. Pompey was more was a brilliant general, but he was like a more ordinary kind of guy that we think of as a Roman. He wanted to be a, wanted military success. He wanted to march around the world conquering um, conquering people. Um, Crassus was in the same position as Pompey. They both helped, as he were, the right wing conservative side counter the left in one, in these conflict constant sort of wars. And they were both made more extremist than either of them really wanted to be, just because that's what revolution does. And uh, But 
after after they'd won the, the battle and, and the right was in charge, while Pompey and uh, Sulla, the dictator, you know, were doing the things that normally dictators and uh, do conquering and murdering and killing and generally taking revenge, uh, Crassus set aside the more sort of modern business of buying up all the properties that nobody wanted anymore, buying them cheaply because he was on the right side, um, adding to his, you know, developing them. He he, he got a whole load of, of slaves um, and instead of sort of exploiting them in the way that Romans would normally do, he sort of trained them up. So he had slaves who were builders, slaves who were architects, slaves who were uh, every aspect of the kind of construction process. And he was able to build amazing houses, sell them, buy more land. He was in a privileged position to do all this. But the most important thing about it is he did stuff that other people at that time didn't really want to do, didn't think was important. And uh, by becoming a property tycoon, he was able to make his fortune. Yeah, and he and he then also discovered something which is very very modern, which the, the Romans, you know, he was early into the notion of being a tycoon, which is essentially someone who's more important than he seems to be. And that was the original meaning of the word tycoon. And uh, he was able to, you know, he lent money to people who might be useful to him. You know, he sold things cheaply to people who might be useful. He sold, you know, he, he made a profit here and a, a loss there. But everything was about arranging a huge web of clients and people who owed him favors. So that when it came to doing the big things in politics, uh, he, he may not have had a huge army in Gaul or a huge army in Spain, but everybody in, in Rome kind of owed him something. And that, and that gave him a particular kind of uh, of power, which was very unusual at the time, and he was a pioneer of. And he knew how to use his money to advance young senators and people who, who needed the money, and uh, he was able to support the young Julius Caesar. Yeah, I mean, there wouldn't have been Julius Caesar without Crassus. I mean, Crassus had this lifelong rivalry with Pompey. They were about the same age. Caesar's a bit younger. And Crassus could see that Pompey, who was a brilliant general, was was getting so powerful and so rich that um, that Crassus couldn't really compete. And and and, and so he, the best thing to do, if you're the way Crassus thought about it, was not necessarily try and be Pompey yourself, which probably would have been a disaster. And indeed, when he did try that, it didn't work. But to build up someone else to challenge Pompey, so Julius Caesar was available. Julius Caesar was someone who could not have got any of the high offices that he got early on in his career without basically Crassus buying them for him. But he, he bought them for him so successfully that, that Caesar you know, became exactly what Crassus wanted him to be, which was a counterweight to the uh, uh, power of his great rival Pompey. And you mention in the introduction how Laurence Olivier played Crassus in the, the Stanley Kubrick version of, of Spartacus. Spartacus. You are he, aren't you? Gladiator, I'm Marcus Licinius Crassus. You must answer when I speak to you. Talk to us about Spartacus, because Crassus features hugely in that story and probably in a role that doesn't often get the credit. Well, I'm not sure how many people give him the credit, because he, he really gave him a huge amount of, of blame, because he's most famous in that movie. And indeed, it, uh, once people started thinking the story was important, 
for crucifying all the Spartacus rebels along along the Appi- Appian Way in one of the most sort of public displays of, of cruelty um, that that most people can can, can remember. So, uh, but his aim really was to forget about it as soon as he'd done it. The point about fighting a slave war, um, although it doesn't it seems odd to us now because these are wars that since the middle of the 19th century have been much romanticised you know, as as being you know the most important wars that were going on, uh, great struggle. But for the Romans, a slave war was just an embarrassment, and no one really wanted to take the trouble to defeat Spartacus. A, because a couple of people had tried it and have got a bit of a hammering, so that wasn't good. And also, you know, uh, Pompey was a long way away, and other people were a long way away. So Crassus, for once, had to actually to get his, you know, outside, leave the bank, as it were, and uh, get out on the road and defeat Spartacus, which he did. Um, mainly by bribing and building, he was using all the skills that he could do in uh, do in Rome was to defeat Spartacus. But he knew he'd never get any credit for it, and of course he didn't. As soon as uh, Spartacus slaves had been defeated, uh, the Romans just wanted to forget that there had ever been a Spartacus slave war. It was just a huge embarrassment to them. So whereas Pompey and others would get great triumphs and great praise and sort of celebrations in the streets when they when they won their wars. Well, you don't get anything much for, for defeating Spartacus, and so um, yeah, and so, it was, so, the, so the whole story disappeared. It was re- reinvented, of course, in the late 19th century because historians and politicians on the left, particularly in, in, in Russia and in Italy, were looking for sort of authentic kind of revolutionary heroes, of which there aren't that many in the ancient world, and so they latched on Spartacus as a as a great. Uh, great figure and that ended up with the movie and of course if you make Spartacus the hero someone's got to be the villain and the villain is Crassus and so in the in the, in the movie Crassus is it becomes a great villain so he only really <laughs> he existed in history as uh, a bad guy who wasn't Spartacus and a very rich guy and even the idea of the richness, you you mentioned, you know, the phrase as rich as Croesus, but actually, uh, in reality, in the ancient world, uh, Croesus had uh, nowhere near the level of wealth as as Crassus. No, Croesus was the uh, a few hundred years earlier, and, and Croesus was the sort of king of a small eastern country that the, that the Romans would uh, routinely go in, uh, conquer, take the money, and bring it back to Rome. So, so yeah. But, uh, Croesus was, a, was, a, was Croesus was an Eastern king, and he was an, very important in the invention of gold and silver coins. He wasn't unimportant, but 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 he wasn't a, a, a major player in the in the ancient world as as, as Crassus was uh, three centuries later. Why did it all go horribly wrong for Crassus then, and why did he go off in search of military glory? Because I would have thought, given his success as a financier, as a as someone who was so influential uh, in terms of politics and uh, behind the scenes and and publicly, I'm surprised he just wasn't happy with that and content with that. Uh, why risk it all on this on this big military adventure? Well, you might ask, uh, probably Vladimir Putin is at the moment. You know why he why he decided to go to Ukraine? Why wasn't he satisfied with being president of Russia, an extraordinarily wealthy guy, but richer than all the oligarchs? You know he could have been perfectly satisfied too, but he wasn't. There is, there is something about people at the, at the top who always want to always see a, a higher top that they haven't that, that they haven't reached. But Crassus had a particular problem in the sense that his strategy was sort of not working anymore because Caesar and Pompey, his Sort of two uh, people he was controlling or trying to were now getting so rich and so powerful as a result of their conquests that being a, a banker and puppet 
string puller in Rome was no longer kind of really cutting it. And so he decided that he had to do something like Pompey and Caesar did, which was conquer a, 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 an unwilling neighbor. And he was unlucky. <laughs> uh, well, he, was, well he, he just wasn't up to it, or unlucky, or a bit of both. And he inv- invaded Parthia. And perhaps, uh, again, a little bit like Putin, Putin thought he could, he could conquer Ukraine pretty easily and that he would eventually do a deal with some sort of cynical old guy like him. Uh, but in fact, he found an, an adversary, you know, uh, we shouldn't have these modern parallels too much, but, but, but he found a young, charismatic ab- adversary who used completely different sort of military tactics to anything he'd ever known. And he was given the right belting, like, uh, just like, you know, Putin has been given a belting by Zelensky. And so, uh, you know, some, sometimes, you know, people think, ah, oh, yes, I can, I can do what Pompey does. I'll, I can do what Caesar does. But uh, that's what he thought he could do. But it was, a, it was a total catastrophe. And it scarred the idea of, you know, it, it really made the Romans, you know, it was Roman losses, big public losses were rare. And Crassus was responsible for one of them. So Crassus was greedy. They said, um, his enemies said he was fabulously rich, which people hated. He lost the big battle, which shamed Rome, and he defeated Spartacus, which no one cared about. And so, a couple of thousand years, Crassus pretty much disappeared. And even when we think of the, the present day, uh, even to think of where Parthia uh, was, it's it's the borderlands of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. So it's parts of the yeah. world that that have a resonance for us in the modern world as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. You see, certainly when I was writing this book, I, um, I wrote an earlier book about Tony Blair in Iraq because in the days long, long ago now, when I was a journalist, I spent time with, with him, watching him do it during, during that war. And yeah, it was, it was hard not, not to think that this, this was an area which, uh, don't know what's exactly, you know, you can argue about exactly why, but uh, the, 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 there are some places which if, if you think you're going to, if you're going to do a bit of invading, you might sort of think that this is an area where, on the whole, when people do invading, it often goes very badly wrong. Anyway, the Romans nothing against the people who actually ran Parthia. Crassus had no, they didn't really know anything about him. So all they wanted was glory for themselves, which you might say is a is, a, is at least a practical aim as opposed to a moral one. Uh, and um, but it was a total disaster in both cases. And in terms of his reputation, it wasn't just that he was killed. There were stories afterwards of how he was killed and what they did with his body afterwards. There developed a whole mythology around the circumstances of his death. Yeah, because the Romans were very ambivalent about money. They didn't really understand. A lot of aspects of modern money, you know, they just didn't really understand. But, they, but greed, they did understand. Greed was, greed was a bad thing. So stories, all sorts of stories uh, emerged, some of which were, were probably true. I mean, Cassus despised Parthia. He thought that, as the Romans did, the sort of Easterners, they were just sort of barbarians, really, and they did uh, uncivilized and uh, and you know not people you need to take any 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 notice of. Uh, but but when but in fact the Parthians, or at least some of them, were extremely civilized, a great deal more civilized than the Romans. If you count civilization as performing Greek tragedies and performing you know having a wonderful, amazing theatre. Anyway, the story goes is that when Crassus's head arrived in Parthia, being cut off so to prove to the king that he was dead. They were putting on a, uh, a performance, theatrical performance of a great Greek play called the Bacchae, which for a prop requires the head of, of, of a headstrong king who's torn apart by his mother and a band of, uh, of, of crazed minad women. 
And what was more convenient for the show than to have the head of Crassus tossed around on stage rather than the stage prop. And they also said that uh, in order to show how greedy he was, they'd poured molten gold into his mouth um, to, uh, to represent you know, his, his greed. It was all about showing Crassus as in a one-dimensional way, as a man of, who only cared about money. And although these days we perhaps don't like people who only care about money, we, we understand that what we know that a lot of them about. The Romans didn't really understand them at all. And so he was uh, he was vilified as greedy and a failure. You know, nothing nothing worse you could be than that, which completely underestimates his importance in you know in, in subsequent history. Because you know all of us know there are far more people who you know who are, who are who are destroyed by greed than who are destroyed by leading armies around the place around Spain and Gaul. So although we focus on you know, the, the villains of the imperialist villains with armies. You know, the, the, there's not, not so many of them uh, these days. There are loads and lots and lots of people who do, who try and inf- affect their influence and try and bribe politicians and try and um, bribe and, and control through the ways that Crassus did. So that's why I say Crassus is, a, understanding Crassus is a more important way of understanding the way in which the past has come into the present than perhaps focusing on the soldiers all the time. And do you think there was a certain amount of jealousy of Pompey that he, he wasn't, Crassus wasn't happy with just having the success in these other areas? He also wanted to be able to match him uh, with some yeah. military renown. Absolutely, because, it, because he, he realised that if he didn't do that, he was just going to be overtaken. And he was a very proud man. The Roman, you know, the Roman politicians wanted to be first. They, wanted to, they, they were very competitive. And, and he realised that, yeah, that unless he did something different. Yeah, he would always be number three. And of course, as soon as he was dead, um, his importance became very, very clear because uh, Rome was run by what they called the three-headed monster, which you might be better described as a sort of three-legged stool. And you know, while it was that why he had three legs, Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus, the whole thing stood up. Once Crassus was dead, uh, and you only had Pompey and Caesar, they were soon at each other's throats. And... Um, and then you end up, ended up with you know Caesar get rid of Pompey, and uh, and then Caesar being killed by his assassins, and then you had one man rule, um, you know for the, for the rest of the Roman Empire. So so the, the, the vacuum that, that that Crassus left by dying was almost as, as important a legacy for history as the his influence on the way in which politicians behave and exercise power. Yeah, the balance of power was gone. And why did that defeat, his defeat, scar the Romans for, for generations afterwards? Was it just that it was a, a military defeat and a, a humiliation? Or uh, what, was the, what was the lesson for them? It was very, very public because uh, I think we have to be realistic. I think the world, probably the Romans suffered a great deal more defeats than we ever knew about. You know, Caesar wrote his own story about how he did, what he did in Gaul. And not surprisingly, he highlighted all the victories. And if anything was a bit of a setback, it, it was uh, knocked off in a couple of lines or probably ignored. So it was very possible in the ancient world to, you know, to lose battles and to, to minimize their importance. But the problem with this one was, was that it was absolutely in the open. A lot of people in Rome didn't approve of this war in, in, in the first place. And all the people who escaped it, a lot of Romans were killed. But the ones who got back, including... 
Gaius Cassius, the guy who eventually ended up as one of the assassins of Caesar, had a really big interest in saying that, you know, this was a total catastrophe, but it was all, all Crassus's fault. Uh, and they, they, they couldn't wish it, wish it away, but they could say it was nothing to do with them. So you got so these stories emerged. So this was a it was a, a humiliation for Rome. Rome didn't like losing legions and losing big battles, and it clearly was a big loss. But it was amplified by the fact that so many people had an interest in doing down Crassus, and 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 so so when uh, Julius Caesar's success, well, when Octavian, you know, Julius Caesar's adopted son, became emperor himself, the first thing he said he wanted to do was to, re- to recapture the legion, the, the eagle standards of the legions that, uh, that, that Crassus had lost in Parthia. And indeed, if, if, if Caesar hadn't been, been assassinated, the, the next thing he was going to do was to go back and capture back those uh, uh, legions. So, so this is a defeat they couldn't ignore, and the Romans didn't like defeats. And if it was a defeat you couldn't ignore, then you had to sort of somehow undo it. And so they, uh, it was an important thing for Caesar and for Augustus later, that that's exactly what they did. Well, it's a brilliant story told so well in this new book, Crassus, the First Tycoon. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press as part of the first of the first volume of their new Ancient Lives series. And the author is Peter Stothard. And Peter, thanks so much for talking to us tonight. Thank you. Great to be here. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Orla McBride, the Director of the National Archives, to discuss the 1926 census, what it reveals, and the plans to digitise it in time for its centenary. Orla, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. The 1901 and 1911 censuses, they're hugely popular. They've been digitised. People love accessing, looking for family names and streets where they lived and so on. There wasn't a census in 1921. Was that to do with the War of Independence? That's right, yes. No, there wasn't a census taken in Ireland in 1921 because of the War of Independence. So the next census then um, that was 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 um, carried out in Ireland was in 1926. And what's really interesting and exciting from our perspective is that it's the first census of the Irish Free State following um, the establishment of the, the Irish Free State after the, the treaty was signed in 1921. So what we will get for the first time really is a snapshot of what life looked in, uh, in Ireland um, post-independence. So, um, you know, we know already that the population had dropped um, so in 1911, uh, the population of Ireland was over 3 million. Um, and then it dropped below um, the 3 million mark um, in 1926. So it's 2.971 million. So there's a drop of about 5.3% in terms of the population. So that kind of allows us to begin to say, well, why was that? Was there a, you know, did people emigrate? Were there Protestants who left following the establishment of free state, etc.? But from our perspective, I think the most important thing in relation to the 1926 census is that for the first time ever, we had reclaimed the Irish language so people could actually fill out their, their, their census using an Irish form. So the, the, the forms that we have from 1926, can on one side it's in English and on one side you can fill it out in Irish. So that's a huge development in terms of what that will tell us about the Irish language because we know from... Um, the, that 
that um, 18.3% of the population spoke Irish at that time. Um, and uh, it would be really interesting from our perspective now to understand, well, how many of that, of those people actually filled out their form in Irish. Um, it also gives us a much better sense of land ownership and, you know, the acreage. So it, it, it for the first time, it allows us to, to see how many, you know, what, what people, what, what land people had um, and, 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 and where they lived and, um, I suppose, you know, the usual marital status, religion, housing conditions, etc. But it gives much, much more just in terms of who they were employed by, etc. So this is really exciting from our perspective in terms of, you know, how people lived. It'll allow us to understand rural and urban um, population movements, um, but it will also give us a sense of, as I said earlier, um, the full extent of a person's property in terms of their dwelling houses, their stables, their coach houses, had they cow houses, did they have dairies, piggeries, barns, etc. Um, and the other thing I think that is really very interesting about the Irish census generally is that these are census forms that are filled out by the head of the household, whereas in other countries, the forms are filled out by the enumerators themselves. Um, so when we see a signature, we know that that's a signature of an individual who lived in 1911, 1901, and now for us, 1926. So Patrick, it's really exciting in terms of what it will tell us and the snapshot that it will give us um, in terms of what life looked like in Ireland, um, but also from a genealogical perspective, it just opens up so many different um, records for people to understand their, 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 their family history. And you'll also get a great insight into uh, religion at the time and how many were Catholic, how many were Protestants and so on. And I suppose very different figures than probably what you'd see now. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in 1926, 92.6% of the population identified themselves as Catholic in their um, 1926 census returns. Um, so absolutely, we will get a great sense really of, 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 you know, I mean, Ireland was predominantly a Catholic country at that time. Um, but also it'll be interesting to know, um, you know, whether whether other movements of people in and out of the country following independence. Um, and um, and that will be interesting from our perspective. It also gives you a really good sense of, of how people were employed in the 1920s. So at that time, Irish, Ireland was a very agricultural country, so 51% of the population were employed uh, through agriculture, about 4% through fishing, and we had about 7% domestic servants. So again, that will be interesting. And it's really interesting for historians. You know, they're really waiting for these records to be released because it gives a great sense of of, of social history and understanding the development of Ireland as a country from 1921-22 following independence and, 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 and what the country looked like in 1926 and what the population looked like in 1926. And as you say, fascinating that there was that drop in population uh, since the 1911 census, uh, down to 2.9 million and 9.97, and and, and, and and a slight majority of men uh, to women. Yes, yes. So yeah, in 1926, 49% women, 51% men. So, you know, marginal enough in terms of the 2.971 million that it, it, it captures. Um but I think from our perspective, and this has always been, the state is very, very committed to ensuring that all of these records are available free of charge, unlike in other, some other countries. Um, so the 1901 and the 1911 census, over 12 million people have, within the first year of those census records being released, actually came onto the National Archives uh, website. 
to 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 find out more about their their family history um, and their, their 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 genealogy, and we're anticipating that this will be as significant um, in terms of um, the diaspora and just people in Ireland who are really really interested in family history. So tell us about the exciting announcement then that there is this government funding, uh, Minister Catherine Martin announcing it, and that uh, to digitise it all. And I love the ambition of the target, a specific date, April twenty twenty six. This is all going to be available fully free of charge online? Yeah, so so under the legislation, it is 100 years after that um, the records can be made available. Um, so from our perspective, uh, it was taken on the 18th of April in 1926. Um, so we will now release it um, uh, after the 18th of April 2026. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, another four years or three years really of hard work. And the hard work really starts now because we're dealing with about... 1,300 boxes, Patrick, with about 700,000 returns in each. And these are all laced together. Um, So we have about 2,500 canvas portfolios from each of the electoral districts. Um, that each of the numerators would have um, would have gathered, and we now have the task of actually um, working on every single one of those portfolios. So the lacing has to be; we have to remove the lacing, and then every single one of them have to go through conservation. Then they go through transcription um, and then digitization. So it's a huge, huge piece of work from our perspective. But as I say, the commitment, the five million that the, the Minister Catherine Martin committed is to ensure that at the end of it, that this will be a, a source of open data um, and that people will be able to find the information relating to their family um, online no more than the 1901 and the 1911 census. And when I look at the 1901 or the 1911 census, I'm always impressed by how good the handwriting is. And But I wonder, is there a problem with some returns that, that are very difficult to read and that it's hard to work out what exactly is being said? Yes, and that's what... That's why technology like digitization is really wonderful in that you can you can use the technology to try and read the, the handwriting much, much better. Um, so, you know, when you you know yourself, even when you when you take a photograph of something and then you enlarge it, you get a much, much better sense of it often than you do um, when you're looking at it. You know, so so it will magnify it in a way for us that will allow us to be able to um, to understand some of the, the trickier handwriting. Now, the thing is that we have not had sight of these census returns. Because the only people, these are the property of the the, um, the Central Statistics Office. So now staff in the National Archives have to be given permission by the Central Statistics Office to enable us to start working on these records. So no one has seen them. Um, they're in the property of the National Archives. We've been safekeeping them. And now we will all, um, staff in the National Archives, will be designated officers of statistics to enable us to start working on these um, on these individual records. And Orla, the National Archives, it is one of our great treasures and uh, you and the team do such brilliant work there. But I'm, I'm just wondering... Do you feel under pressure to make that deadline? Uh, you're full of confidence. We will make it. Yeah, no, we are. Absolutely. Um, I think we will. We don't have the, um, the 1901 and the 1911 census. They were, both of those censuses were uh, released for public inspe- inspection in 1961. Um, so they had already been microfilmed. Um, so a lot of the hard work had been done. Um, when the 1901 and the 1911 project started um, back over a decade ago. So we have more work to do 
in terms of releasing this census. But actually, because we've been through it twice before, there's a huge amount of learning and a huge amount of expertise now within the staff of the National Archives. So, yeah, I think we are confident. We have no choice, <laughs> Patrick, but to be confident that we've been releasing it in April uh, 2026. Um, so we have a project plan ready to go from January to start the work. OK, well, I think in 2026 we'll do a full show on it. Well, my thanks to Orla McBride, the director of the National Archives. A very exciting announcement this week. And I think people will be eagerly awaiting uh, the digitisation of that census in 2026 when it is all made available online. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be going beyond the bullets to find out what life was like for ordinary people in Ireland in the years between 1921 and 1923. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome. Welcome back to Talking History. Now, to end the show tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Kira Brannock, who lectures at the University of Limerick, is an Irish Research Council Laureate Awardee and a Fulbright Scholar for this year. And uh, Kira is joining me. Six more 
Okay, well, my thanks you too. Okay. Well, welcome back, Professor Kira in History Act Two Talking. So tonight, I'm now to end the show by Professor Kira delighted to be joined, who lectures Kira Brannock of Limerick is at the University of Awardee and is an Irish researcher and a Fulbright Council Laureate Scholar for this. And uh, Kira is joining me here. Um,
Okay, well, my thanks, Professor Kira, in history. Well, welcome back to Talking Show tonight. I'm now to end the show by Professor Kira, who lectures. Delighted to be joined by the awardee of Limerick at the University of Brannock. And a Fulbright is an Irish Research Council laureate scholar for and uh, Kira this year. And is joining me.
start on January 1923 Professor Kira back to talking well welcome back thanks very much Patrick history okay well my thanks who lectured now to end this by Professor Kira tonight I'm Sarah Brannock delighted to be joined at the University Awardee of Limerick and a Fulbright Scholar for is an Irish research and uh, Kira Council Laureate year uh, this is joining me Thank you. 
Professor Kira history. Well, welcome back. Thanks very much, Patrick. Back to talking who lectures. Okay, well, my thanks. Kira Branock by Professor Kira. Tonight, I'm now to end the show awardee. I'm delighted to be joined at the university. A Fulbright Scholar for of Limerick is an Irish research year. And uh, Kira Council Laurie is joining me this Branagh there and I'm afraid that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to my producer Marisa Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound we've got more debate and discussion now we will have to go with that